The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two Siege Fall. Chapter Eight Dark Day. The day dawned slowly through a heavy overcast. The few birds that stayed for the winter were awake and chattering now. That was the only sound that Martin had heard all night. He had imagined he could have heard a mouse fart, if one had, but there was nothing. The world had become very quiet after the power went out. The regular hiss and hum of tire noise from the highway over the hill used to be so regular that it was easy to ignore. The absence of highway noise meant that even a leaf rustle sounded like a drum solo. Martin tossed back the heavy blanket. It was time for the next watch. Susan was up next. He preferred to have the women take day watches. There would be less surprise and more backup available. They weren't expected to fight off threats, just spot them and alert the others. After one last look around from the front porch, Martin stepped inside. Susan and Margaret were standing side by side at the dining room table. Both of their eyes were wide, their faces pale. What? he said. Margaret said quietly, It's Ruby. She's cold. So? I'm cold too. Martin pulled off his gloves. No, I mean, she's cold in there. Margaret pointed down the hallway. Martin's heart sank. Oh, no. He ran down the hall and into the bedroom. The air was stale and acrid with the smell of urine. One of the women had pulled a sheet over Ruby's head earlier. Martin pulled it back. Ruby lay on her side, face away from the door. Martin felt her neck for a pulse but from her cold, clammy skin, there was little point. He tried to turn her on her back, but she had grown stiff. Her body was stuck in an open fetal position. She felt light and frail, like she was made of coat hangers and paper mache. One eye was stuck shut, the other eye was open halfway. Martin tried to close it, but it wouldn't close. He didn't want to press too firmly. The sheet beneath her was wet, the pillowcase stuck to the side of her face. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Margaret and Susan in the doorway, as if they dared not enter the room. She must have died in her sleep hours ago, Martin said. He finally got that one eye to stay shut. But why? said Susan, with a catch in her voice. I don't know. I'm no doctor. She's been on blood thinners and heart pills for years. You know how she was always talking about her Coumadin levels and all? He slowly peeled the pillowcase off her cheek. If I had to guess, I'd say she died of a stroke while she slept. She looks kind of relaxed and peaceful, don't you think? He turned to the two women for agreement, but neither nodded or said anything. Both had tears welling up in their eyes. Well, that's my guess, anyhow. I prefer to think she went quietly in her sleep. But what do we do now? Margaret asked in a hoarse whisper. Martin straightened up. What do they do now? He had never had to deal with someone dying in his home. That might have been a more commonplace occurrence a hundred years ago. But the progress of the 20th century was to remove death from people's lives. People were sequestered away in hospitals or nursing homes to die, surrounded by cool professional caretakers and easy-to-clean surfaces, all out of sight. All of those tidy solutions were no longer available. The hospitals were operating on minimal systems, if at all. 
They couldn't help with the dead. Would a funeral home even be in business? They couldn't even call for an ambulance to take Ruby away. I think we'll have to do some things ourselves, Martin said gravely. Like what? Margaret asked. Well, like clean her up. Regardless of whoever we get a hold of, for whatever it is we're supposed to do, we can't leave her like this. Dustin and Judy peeked between Margaret and Susan. What's going on? Dustin asked. Margaret started to explain, but choked up. Susan took over. Ruby died last night. Judy gasped and quickly looked away. What do we do? Dustin asked. I don't know, answered Martin. I'll ride the bike up to Town Hall and ask them. Four in the hallway stared at Martin, expecting more. Dustin, go fill up two buckets from the well. Judy, we'll need those two big pots for on top of the stove. Go make sure they're empty and clean. Susan, there's a dishpan under the kitchen sink. Fetch that, some soap, and some old washcloths from the cabinet downstairs. One by one, they peeled away to tend to their tasks. Margaret remained. What about me? She barely got out the words. Martin took her by the hand and led her into their bedroom. He closed the door behind them and hugged her. She burst into silent sobs and clutched at him in her arms as if afraid she would fall off a cliff. Her tears began to run down his neck. I've cleaned out those pots, came Judy's voice from behind the door. Fill them halfway with the water Dustin got and put them on the stove, said Martin, without letting go of Margaret. I yelled at her, Margaret sobbed. That's the last thing she heard from me. I was just upset. I don't, I didn't hate her. Oh, why did that have to be the last thing she heard? Martin pulled her head gently back and down onto his shoulder. Ruby knew you cared for her. You've shown it to her for years by what you did for her. You took her to all of those doctor appointments. You helped her move, twice, and clean. She always thanked you profusely, remember? Margaret nodded, but sobbed a little deeper. Lots of people say they care, but you showed her that you cared by spending all those hours with her. She knew. But she said... Margaret started. Don't put too much into that. She'd been out of sorts all day, tired from walking, miffed about not getting a box. It could have been her meds were imbalanced. She wasn't feeling well. I'm sure she didn't mean... But I can never take that back, Margaret squeaked. I'll never have a chance to tell her that I... She returned to sobs. I can never apologize. Why did I yell at her? It was just a stupid supper. I don't know why I yelled at her. Martin stroked her hair and held her tight. Well, don't dwell on it. A few harsh words don't cancel years of service. She knew you cared. He pushed her back off his shoulder so he could see her face, even with puffy red eyes and tear-matted hair. She still had a vulnerable beauty. A lost little girl. He kissed her forehead. You've been trying so hard to be the brave pioneer woman through all of this, he said tenderly. All stoic and strong, keeping your household running. We'll need that bravery if things keep going like they are. But for right now, it's okay to not be so brave. She buried her face into his shoulder again and resumed sobbing. He held her tight, happy, if that's the word for it, to be needed by her. 
He stood with her for a long time, until she seemed all cried out. She pulled back slowly, sniffling long, wet snuffles. Martin pulled a paper towel from his pocket. It took several blows to clear her nose. What now? She wiped her eyes with her sleeve. I'm going to ride up to town hall and ask. Why don't you three girls get Ruby cleaned up? Maybe put her in her favorite outfit. You know, that light green pantsuit that you said made her look like a dinner mint? Margaret chuckled at the memory, but started to well up again. She shook it off. Yeah, she always did like that pantsuit. Margaret slowly opened the bedroom door. Judy and Susan stood in the hallway. We need to get Ruby cleaned up, she said to them. Judy, would you bring in one of those pots of water? Susan, please bring in the soap and the cloths. Both went to their tasks. I'll be okay now, Martin. You should get up to town hall. Martin started to walk past her, but she snatched him in a sudden tight hug. Thank you, she whispered. She kissed his ear. It was early to be expecting anyone to be at town hall. Martin knocked at the doors. He peered between cupped hands to see if there was any movement inside. There was. The town clerk scuffed up to the door in her slippers and bathrobe. What brings you here so early? she asked. For Martin's curious look, she explained her appearance. Been sleeping in my office. Got no heat at home. But they rigged up the wood stove in the basement. Said, well, it ain't Florida, but it's better than my house. Well, uh, I was wondering, Martin was reluctant to blurt out, what do you do with dead bodies? That sounded too crass. I had someone in my house die last night. Oh, I'm sorry. Was it someone close? Not immediate family or anything. An older lady from our church. The thing is, uh, what do we do now? I see. Well, come on inside. Lenders will be along shortly. He just went over to the school to check on the shelter people. Uh, have a seat right over there. Martin sat on a creaky wooden chair. The air inside town hall was a bit warmer than outside, but not by much. The smell of wood smoke was faint, but unmistakable. The clerk returned with a clipboard. This is our new death form, she handed Martin the clipboard. We've been having people fill this out. It's not much for paperwork, but at least we'll have a record of who died, when and where, if anyone is concerned about that later. She scuffed back around the partition. The form asked for the deceased's full name, date of birth, and place of birth. Martin had to think hard. He never had much of a memory for such personal details. In his mind, he replayed some of Ruby's stories. Belfast, that was it. She was a little girl in Belfast, Maine. He had no idea if she had actually been born there or not, but it was something. Date of birth? Hmm, he had to resort to mental math. They celebrated her 80th birthday a while back. Was it two years ago? Longer? He decided it was three years ago. Ruby was 83. Subtract that from this year, and... There. He had one line complete. Date of death and location were easy. Next of kin? Yeah, that wasn't so easy. She had a daughter somewhere, but she seldom came to visit Ruby. When she did, it was usually to ask for money, which Ruby always gave her, even if it meant she had no grocery money for the week. Ruby was a sucker that way. Margaret would always take Ruby grocery shopping afterward to make up for the shortfall. Martin had no idea where the daughter was, 
At least he knew her name, Crystal. He never heard her last name, and he thought she was married, or divorced, or something. He wrote all he knew, daughter, Crystal. In the cause of death box, he wrote what he guessed was the cause. In the remarks box, he added that she died peacefully in her sleep. If anyone in the future was trying to find out about Ruby and read the form, it might be some comforting nugget for them to find. The front doors clattered open. A rush of cold air swept down the wide corridor. Simmons? asked Landers. He was also bundled up in a coat, cap, and scarf, so that only his voice betrayed his identity. Uh, yeah, that's me. Martin stood. What are you doing up here so early in the morning? Well, I had somebody die in our house last night. Ah, Landers sounded sincerely sad to hear the news. That makes three new ones, counting yesterday's. Was it somebody close? Well, maybe not that close. She was an older lady, member of our church. She needed some place to stay because her building had no heat. We put her up in my daughter's old bedroom. But what I came to ask was, uh, what do we do now? What do we do with her body? Landers took off his cap and shook his head. Yeah, not a lot we can do nowadays. Do we dig a grave on our property and bury her there? Or take her somewhere? I've never had to deal with this before. I don't know what to do. Yeah, let's see. Landers stroked his beard. How long has she been dead? Uh, we don't know exactly. Maybe six hours? She's all stiff and stuck in the position she was sleeping in. Yeah, rigor mortis. You might want to get the body into a body bag. I've heard the dead bodies can start to ooze fluids after a while. There won't be any morticians to do their thing, so it's going to be a harsh physical reality right now. Okay, plastic bag, but then what? Ah, well, uh, after you get the body ready for burial, you bring it up to she, Martin interrupted. She's a she, not an it. Landers smiled sympathetically. Sorry. I meant to say her. Bring her up to the village cemetery at the top of Stockman Hill. We have a grave dug already up there. Bring her up there whenever you're ready. There won't be anyone to perform any kind of service for her, so you're on your own there. Oh, and uh, bring your own shovels, too. Sorry to sound so cold about it all, but, but your lady is the eighth one since this began. I've been around this barn a few times already. Uh, you understand. Martin nodded. He left the clipboard on the wooden counter. Yeah, I understand. Thanks. Martin pulled his stocking cap over his ears and pulled his collar up before opening the door. We have her cleaned up and dressed, Margaret announced as Martin came through the door. He could see the puffy eyes of Susan and Judy. It was a very hard thing to do, but they helped out a lot. What did they say? I guess they have graves already dug up at the cemetery. Lender said we could take her up there whenever we were ready. Okay, well, we'll get ourselves cleaned up, too, and ready to go. While the women scrubbed their hands vigorously, as if death were a contagion, Martin brought up two heavy black trash bags from the garage. Ruby looked awkward, as if frozen while climbing a ladder. A dinner meant climbing a ladder. Martin pulled one bag down over her head and shoulders, though it kept snagging on her curled hand. The bottom bag slipped up over her waist much more quickly. With duct tape, he sealed the two bags together. "'What are you doing?' demanded Margaret. 
Landers said that bodies might start to ooze fluids and stuff. He said to put her in a body bag. All we have are trash bags. Well, we can't bury Ruby like that. She looks like, it looks like we're taking her to the dump. Susan came in alongside Margaret and gasped. What? Oh, you're going to throw her away? That's awful. He said to put the body in plastic bags, so that's what I did. I'm sorry it looks bad, but what else are we going to do? Martin felt flustered for lack of a clear alternative plan to suggest. We have to do something else, insisted Margaret. That just won't do. There's no dignity in that. What if we wrap her in a sheet? asked Susan. Kind of like a burial shroud. No one will see the plastic. Margaret's face lit up at the idea. I know just the one. She trotted down the hall. I saw some silk flowers downstairs, added Judy, hesitantly. Oh, that's good, said Susan. Can you find some pins, too? We could pin them on. Judy nodded and ran down the hallway. I just did what Lander said, Martin apologized. He said plastic bags. I know, Martin. Susan squeezed his arm. You're doing what you can. Let us get her a bit more dressed up for her final trip. Martin's shoulders slumped. Final trip. How are they going to get Ruby up to Stockman Hill to the cemetery? If trash bags set everyone off, he certainly couldn't suggest putting Ruby in a wheelbarrow or tied to a pole between him and Dustin like a deer. When you have her ready, you let me know, he said. I have to go get the truck ready. Martin could not help but give a sad smile when he saw the lady's handiwork. Margaret had found the sheet from Lindsay's childhood memories box. It had minty green ponies printed on it. It was the perfect color for Ruby. Susan and Judy had dressed up the tied-off ends of the sheet with light green ribbon. Near Ruby's shoulder was a small bouquet of silk flowers and more light green ribbon. Hey, you guys did real good. That's got some dignity, he said. They carried her down to the truck in another sheet. Dustin had cobbled together a beer of two-by-fours and a scrap of plywood. I figure four of us can each carry an end and take her from the truck to the grave. Dustin started to climb into the back of the truck. I want you to stay here, son, said Martin. I don't want to leave the house empty. Are you three ladies up to carrying an end? All three nodded solemnly. Ruby isn't heavy, son. We'll be fine. Keep an eye out. Have one in the chamber and two magazines in your pocket. I don't know how long we'll be. Dustin nodded with his head down. Martin tried to balance a stately processional speed and his desire not to waste precious gasoline. He turned into the cemetery to see a gray minivan and an older Buick already there on the narrowed cemetery road. Two separate groups of people stood near the ends of a long pile of dirt. Martin tugged at the beer to get it halfway out of the pickup bed. He and Margaret took the front board ends. Susan and Judy took the tail end. They walked carefully around the dirt pile, trying to keep their beer level, lest Ruby roll off into the ground. They stopped and stared. Before them stretched a long trench, six feet wide and maybe fifty feet long. The town had dug a mass grave with a backhoe before the ground froze. It could accommodate dozens more dead. Martin climbed down into the trench. The sloping wall end was where he guessed the eighth body had been recently buried. Number nine, Ruby, was probably supposed to go up next to that. With his shovel, he scooped out a hollow in the slope. 
he signaled to Margaret. She and Susan lowered the tied-up sheet into his arms. It still surprised him how little Ruby weighed. He settled her onto the depression that he had dug. He climbed out and stuck his shovel in the long pile of dirt behind them. You should say a few words, Margaret prompted. Martin knew that she would say that. He also knew that she was right. He was no more a pastor than he was a doctor, but for his little household he was all they had. During the drive to the cemetery he tried to think of what to say. What does one say? He could remember attending graveside services at his parents' funerals. He was young then, and not paying attention to what the men said. He opened his Bible, to no page in particular. He hoped that if he just started talking, the right words would flow. It was a stupid plan, and he knew it. But it was all he had. They were grieving. That word triggered a memory. Paul told the Thessalonians not to grieve like the rest of men, who have no hope. For much of the world, death is seen as the ultimate end, and a dismal one at that. Whether rich or poor, powerful or strong, everyone dies, and that's all there is. Paul said in Romans, I think, that if we believed like that, we would be men most miserable. But we're not, because we have hope. Not a sort of wishing hope like kids before Christmas, but the confident hope that someone will deliver on a promise. Jesus told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. If I've prepared a place for you, I will come back and get you, and you will live with me. Ruby had that hope. She accepted Christ as her Savior, <laughs> long before I was even born. She had seen him work in her life all those years. She talked about the little miracles along the way. That gave her hope that he'll keep his promise to her, that most important promise, to take her up to be with him. So, while we who are left still grieve, it shouldn't be like the rest of men who have no hope. We, too, have the same promise, that he has Ruby with him now. The end of this life is not really the end at all. For her, it's a new beginning. She has no more aches and pains, doesn't have to take any more pills. She has a new body and an eternal life. We now lay to rest here her mortal shell. We'll miss her and her stories about Maine. But we who are also saved will see her again. We have his promise on that. Martin closed his Bible and looked at the rest of his group. All heads were bowed. Was there something else he was supposed to do? That was all he could think of. He turned and plucked his shovel from the pile of dirt. Someone had to be the first to drop dirt on the minty ponies. He guessed that it was his job to go first. After his first shovelful scattered on the sheet, Margaret took the other shovel and dropped a scoop of earth on Ruby. Susan asked for Martin's shovel with her eyes and an outstretched hand. She added a scoop to the grave. Judy followed, eyes welled up. Each took a turn shoveling the sandy clay until the last traces of the green and white sheet were gone. The three women stood back, as if the task was done, but Martin knew that she had to be buried deeper than that. He put his back into it. He shoveled deep and threw hard, as if, by physical force, he could erase death itself. After a while, Margaret touched his arm, startling him. That's enough, she said gently. She pointed with her eyes. He had piled dirt high in the trench over Ruby. The excess was simply cascading down beside her into the open trench. 
He felt like he might have refilled the whole trench if she hadn't stopped him. Martin's arms dropped to his side. He was exhausted. With his hands still stiff in a shovel grip, he reached inside his coat and pulled out a crude grave marker that he had made. On the five-by-eight-inch scrap of pressure-treated wood he had carved, Ruby Gibson, a child of Maine and a child of God, and her dates. He stuck the little board in the fresh earth. He straightened up, adjusted his coat, and turned to go. Um, excuse me, came a voice from behind him. It was a small woman, points of white hair extending below her black furry cap. She looked as if she were struggling to frame her question. Martin waited. A graveside is no place for a rush. We don't have a minister. Ours drove south to be with his family. I heard you, uh, what you were saying over your um, person. Would you please say a few words for us? Martin sank inside. He felt he had no strength left. He barely had enough words for Ruby, and he knew her. This was a total stranger. What words could he find for someone he never knew? The little lady in the furry hat had, despite her wrinkles, the same lost little girl look that Margaret had. He was too exhausted to resist. Okay, he said. Can you tell me something about your uh, husband? His name is, she choked, Eugene. Uh, how did yours die? She asked conversationally. Martin guessed that she wanted to talk to someone, anyone. Oh, um, we think she had a stroke, died quietly in her sleep. Oh, that's nice to hear. Many times I'd have wished Eugene could have passed like that. He had a lung condition, you see. For the past couple of years, they had him on the CPAP machine, increasing the oxygen level over the past few months. He got along pretty good with his machine, still doing things around the house. He called it his filling station. She tried to chuckle, but the engine wouldn't start. When the power went out and the machine didn't work, he said he'd be okay. He tried not to move around much, you know, conserve his oxygen, but his breathing got more and more labored. Still, he said he would be okay. The past couple of days, it was such hard work for him to breathe that he was sweating. I tried to make him as comfortable as I could, damp cloths on his forehead, fanning him. He kept telling me not to worry, said that he'd be okay. Martin gave the woman a curious and skeptical look. Oh, he didn't mean that he'd be able to breathe better. Not that kind of okay. It was that he knew where he was going. He knew that his end was near. We all did, though no one wanted to talk about it. But he wasn't worried or scared. He knew that to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. He wasn't afraid of his end. I wasn't afraid either, I guess. I just didn't want it to be so soon. We'd only been married fifty-one years. It wasn't enough. I wanted more. Margaret put her arm around the little woman. She looked up at Margaret with a little smile. I wanted more, too. But I'm glad that he's not suffering any more. Now it's like he kept saying, he's okay now. She sniffled and smiled. He's probably up there now saying, I told you so, and doing that silly little victory dance of his. Her chuckle engine started that time. 
Uh, did Eugene have a favorite Bible verse? Martin asked. I could read that. The little woman stared into the distance as she thought. He had so many passages that he liked. He was especially fond of the book of Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah. Martin's smile sagged. That was a very large target from which to quickly find the ideal comforting verse. He still had his stupid plan to just start talking. It worked once. While he turned in his little pocket Bible to find Isaiah, the little lady's companions lifted a rolled-up rug tied with twine. Two young men struggled to get the roll into the trench. They laid it beside where Ruby had just been covered up. When they climbed out, Martin found what he hoped would be a suitable passage. God told Isaiah to tell his people, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Martin looked over the top of his Bible, at the roll and the trench. God did not mean that nothing bad would ever happen to his people. Bad things happened all the time. In fact, a lot of the rest of God's message through Isaiah was warning his people that bad times were coming. He was trying to reassure his people that he wasn't trying to wipe them out, but to shake them out of their rebellious pride, to bring them back to him. That's why he told them, Fear not, for I am with you. Not because nothing bad would ever happen, but that he would be there, waiting for them, if they returned. Eugene... Martin looked at the little lady. Rowell. Eugene Rowell was not afraid. He knew God was going to be there for him, not just to heal his lungs, that Eugene would have an eternity of free breathing. Eugene looked forward to that day, which I guess was yesterday. Rest easy, breathe easy, Eugene Rowell. Martin closed his Bible. The little lady snuffled vigorously into her handkerchief. The two young men asked to borrow Martin's shovels. He nodded. The little lady hugged Martin around the waist. Thank you, she said. Eugene would have liked that. It means a lot to me that someone spoke for him today. Well, you're welcome. Martin noticed that the crowd of mourners was larger than when he started. A third group of people had slowly gathered around, mingling with Eugene's people. As the young men shoveled earth over the rug roll, a round-faced woman approached Martin and touched his sleeve. "'Excuse me,' she said, with eyes downcast. "'I hate to impose on you. Uh, this is really hard for me.' Martin guessed that she wanted him to say a few words over her lost loved one, too. He could see a large black plastic shape behind the mourner's legs. He felt exhausted after laying Ruby to rest. He felt emotionally drained with the pressure to be an impromptu pastor for his household and then Eugene's wife. He didn't think he had anything left. Yet her sad face, looking at him, felt like an indictment. Was his exhaustion somehow better than hers? The words weren't coming easily for the round-faced woman. So Martin waited with a patience that exhaustion sometimes gives. I'd like you... I'd like it if you might say a few words for my Keith. I could do that. Martin tried not to sound tired. It would probably sound condescending. He was simply tired. Could you tell me something about him? It would help me figure out what to say. Yeah, sure, uh, but where to begin? 
She stared at the ground for a few moments. Keith was always a doer. He, he worked hard all his life, providing for his family. He was a good man, but... She began to sniff. He did have a temper sometimes. He didn't like anyone telling him what to do. She smiled at Martin, as if to make her statement lighthearted, but her dark eyes told a different story. I tried to tell him it didn't look safe. She looked away. I'm afraid my saying that might have made him stay up there. He could be so stubborn. Like I said, he didn't like anyone telling him what to do. He was chopping on some old cedar fence so we could burn it in the fireplace. But something must have slipped. The axe cut deep into his leg. We tried to clean the wound. My son, Tyler, is the safety monitor for his shift at work. He helped with his unit's medic in Iraq. She smiled briefly with pride. We used alcohol and bandages, but it got infected. At first it was all red. Then it started to turn black. Keith began to run a very high fever. We couldn't cool him down. Yesterday he laid there, sweating and mumbling. Then he just went limp. Oh, I'm so sorry, whispered Martin. Ruby's dying in her sleep seemed like quite a blessing. He didn't need to know all these details about how Keith died, but he figured the woman was finding some closure and telling somebody about it. The hard part, she continued, is that after hearing the nice things you said about your person and that lady's husband, is that Keith wasn't saved. He isn't going to heaven. Her shoulders heaved a few times, as if to sob, but it was plain that the woman had sobbed herself out so many times her well was dry. Oh, Martin felt at a loss. What do pastors say in such circumstances? Where are the words of hope for that? He couldn't sugarcoat things with some common everyone-goes-to-heaven palliative. The woman knew that wasn't the case. What comfort could he or anyone give her? He had just spoken about Ruby and Eugene having a happy new beginning. The woman realized that her husband was just starting a terrible eternity. Martin felt certain that she would feel insulted if he tried the customary saccharine words where everybody gets turned into angels. She knew it wasn't true. Nor did Martin want to start talking about the tragedy of hell. She knew that, too, and didn't need lemon juice poured in her cut. What words did that leave him? There was no middle ground to focus upon. I know it's too late for him, she began to gush. Six knows I tried witnessing to him, but when it came to God, he was a hard-hearted man. Oh, he loved his dogs, but he would get so angry whenever I brought up God. Said he didn't need God. Said he was just stories to milk people out of their money. He said he would have nothing to do with a God that let babies die. Yeah, that sounds like my brother, Martin tried to commiserate. He said that, too. Once he told me that he would never submit to a god that sent people to hell, that he'd rather spend eternity in hell than be in heaven with a god like that. I don't think he ever saw the irony. God didn't have to send my brother to hell. He was going there all on his own. Still, she said, it doesn't seem right to just dump Keith's body in a hole and go home. Isn't there something you might say? About a prayer for the rest of you, Martin asked. She nodded and motioned for her group to join her. 
two men, who had round faces like the woman's, dragged the large plastic trash bag bundle to the edge of the trench. They rolled it in the trench, like jetsam going overboard. They stood ready with their own shovels. The rest of them held hands, bowed their heads, and waited. It was time for Martin to have some words. All he had was his stupid plan. With a deep breath, he began. Lord, please be with these people to comfort their hearts in their loss. You said, blessed are they who mourn. Well, here they are. We don't know what the state of Keith was, whether he ever confessed you as Lord. Maybe he did when he was young. Martin knew that he was grasping at straws, but thought it might salvage some scrap of hope for the woman. Given the prospects of the days ahead, any scrap of hope would be treasured. But he lived angry at you, and I don't know why. But you know, so we leave his fate in your hands. Please be with the others who might be like Keith. Martin guessed that the two young men were Keith's sons, and, by the way they rolled their father's body into the trench, they weren't necessarily all that sad that he was gone. They might have inherited their father's anger. If so, their mother was probably worried about them and their fate, too. For her, he added, Please touch their hearts before their last day. Amen. The men shook Martin's hand and commenced shoveling. No other words were said. The round-faced woman mouthed a thank you, but had no voice. Numbness had replaced exhaustion. Martin turned slowly to gather his shovels and head back to his truck. The women had gone on ahead of him. He paused to look back at the trench. He resolved to prepare some better words in advance, in case there was a next time. From the size of the trench, it was clear that someone was expecting there would be many next times. A light rain began to fall. A dark day indeed. You never know what you're going to have to deal with. Thanks for listening so far, and be sure to check out the website and the other books at Mick dash Roland dot com. Thanks.